Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome on to this episode. I'm excited because we get the chance to talk with Professor Anthony Butler about the work that he's doing on bioimaging. Here's an excerpt of the conversation with Anthony. Yeah, I mean, one of the most satisfying things about this is actually it's health research or mm-hmm. health technology. And so there is a lot of money to be made because it's a high tech and you, and you sell it and that's how you get product out there. Yeah. But actually coming back to that 300 million people a year who get a CT, that if we can improve their their time in the health system, then that's actually incredibly satisfying. Mm. Our research teams are divided up into cancer, heart disease, stroke, bone, and degenerative problems. Right. And that's about 70 to 80% of what people get going to hospital with. And I'm wondering which one's going to get me. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, just before we start the interview, I wanted to say thanks to those of you who've left a review and a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. It's actually really easy to do um, in the app. You just scroll down. There's a section called Ratings and Reviews, and it takes about 15 seconds. There's some star ratings there, and if you do that, it helps other people find the show. If you enjoy this episode, then you might want to check out some of the earlier ones as well, because this is the 67th one, so there's a huge amount of content in the back catalog. The last thing before we dive into this interview is a quick shout out to everybody who attended the Great Southern Unconference on Friday evening and Saturday. I really enjoyed it, and because it was an unconference, we didn't know what the topics would be when we gathered together on the Friday night, but I think there were about 80 people who attended, and there was a lot of collaboration, a lot of interesting thoughts coming out of it. And also a super big thanks to George Moon, who asked me to do a lightning talk. I recorded the talk, and I've uploaded the six-minute video of it to the Seeds Facebook page. So if you go there, you can click on it to listen to what I had to say which is really all about the need for collaboration, not letting ourselves get into silos. And I use that image of the avocado as well, just thinking about what is the true potential of an avocado, that that there's a seed inside it that one day could become a tree if the right conditions are made available to it. So you might want to check that video out as well. Now let's turn and learn about color x-rays and bioimaging with Professor Anthony Butler. All right, so I'm here with Professor Anthony Butler from the Mars Project. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me here. Um, On this show, what we do is we talk about what people are doing now, but in order to do that, I find it's helpful to unpack where they're from Mm -hmm. and sort of what led them to do what they're doing now. So if you don't mind, can we just rewind right back to the beginning of your life and tell us a bit about where you're from? Well, I'm from Christchurch. I was born here. In fact, I was born a few hundred meters from where we're sitting. Um, And... How did I end up here? I think I took a very random route through life without a lot of direction. Okay. Um, I just kind of followed what was interesting to me. And along the way, I picked up a few skills and grew a team of people. And um, and was that even in childhood, sort of, you were curious? Yeah, I, I always enjoyed science and computers. And mm. um, at school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I quite like music, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, <laughs> and then I got to university, and I was still completely unsure what to do. So I actually had um, what was called preferential entry to medical school, and I had direct entry into the honours physics program, and I wasn't, again, sure what to do. So they actually let me do both, which was quite nice of them. So for my first year at university, I did medicine and physics. 
And then I decided I wanted to go and live in Dunedin because it's a great city. Right. And moved down there and carried on through medical school. But I hadn't actually decided I wanted to give up physics, so I did that part-time and finished my physics degree around the time I finished medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, moved up to Hawke's Bay. where so I was a so, Sorry to interrupt, but it sounds like it was quite a busy time then if you're studying, you know, because studying to be a doctor is quite uh, full-on. Yeah, um, I guess it I guess under some views it probably was, but I had a pretty good life. Um, I don't feel I was working any harder than anyone else at university. Everyone mm-hmm. works hard at university. Um, and I guess the thing is you enjoyed it, right? I absolutely enjoyed it, yeah. yeah. Um, I never found going to my physics lab challenging. I enjoyed being on the wards as a, as a medical student. Um, I enjoyed going to the Ducks Deluxe on Friday night. You know, it was, yeah. yeah. And what was it you enjoyed, I guess, you know, about studying medicine what was it that was um you know thinking long term what were you trying for what were you aiming for i actually didn't know where i was going i remember most of the way through medical school i was thinking of being a surgeon right um and that changed actually towards the end of medical school um where i was enjoying the more diagnostic type issues how do you decide what's wrong with someone okay um and i enjoyed learning and understanding why things happen Mm. um and I guess on the physics side, I, I had the same kind of passion of really, I did you know, quantum mechanics and part, I spent my summers doing uh, studentships at the hospital when I was doing radiation physics and I really enjoyed the, the, the understanding of the basics of how things worked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was 13, I, my favorite hobby, or maybe a bit younger, 10 or 11, was Lego. You know, how do you put things together? How do they work? Mm. And in fact, in that sense, I was enjoying the same things in physics as I was enjoying in medicine. Right. Because you're getting back to the building blocks, if getting, you like. Yeah, the, to the building blocks of, 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 yeah, absolutely. of life and, yeah. and everything. Yeah. Um, so after that, I, um, and I, I guess I'll, I'll introduce it also at that point, um, my father, who works with me on this project, who's mm-hmm. a medical physicist and a um, theoretical physicist, always taught me a passion for knowledge. Mm-hmm. And he had his own career um he was head of physics and later the pro vice chancellor here at the university Mm -hmm. um and he jumped from areas of physics based on his interest he got into laser physics and then particle physics and um while he was doing that i headed up to hawks bay and worked as a junior doctor Mm -hmm. and started getting interested in computers and i did a couple of computing courses via correspondence Mm -hmm. um just as a hobby, just because while I wasn't learning, after a year of working as a doctor, I realised I wasn't learning anymore and were learning at quite the same pace, and so I wanted to pick up some more papers. Right. Um, so it sounds like you've always had sort of a curiosity yeah, to explore absolutely. and yeah, discover. T- totally. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and just talking about your father, um, like I think I can see him through the window here right now. Mm. <laughs> um, just explain a little bit more, uh, you know, what, what him being involved in academic research and things, what do you think that... Um, did for you as a child growing up and then because that's sort of where you've ended up as well can you talk us through that I think what you're going you know right back to what makes personality but I think right from the beginning I was taught that you know it's one thing to learn facts it's a totally another thing to learn how right and so I remember as a even a very young kid age five to ten um, no explanation of you know why the sky is blue. It's it's not because it's blue. You have to understand about light scattering and things. And um, you know he he actually was one of the founders of Science Alive, and so he was always able to break 
even the most complex things down into something a young kid could understand. Mm. And so I got a very good understanding of the basic building blocks of our, of our world. Mm. Um, and I always treat everything that way. Mm. Yeah, no, that's great. That's interesting as well. You never know with Christchurch where paths will cross. No. But my no. father was actually um, the first director at Science Alive oh, was back he? in 1991 or so. Okay. Yeah. They yeah, probably know each other. Then. I'm they, sure they, they know each other. Yeah, his name was Norman Moe. So oh, yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have an accent and it's confusing for people, but I actually did grow up here in Christchurch. Right. So okay. Anyway, we can go into that later. Yeah. Um, so um, how else did that relationship with your father, like uh, in, in terms of the impact that he had well, actually, I guess that we're moving on to how the project started. So I'll just finish my training. Yeah. Yeah. So in Hawke's Bay, I did some computing and decided I wanted to get into medical imaging and radiology. Mm -hmm. So I got accepted to the specialty training scheme here in Christchurch. And it's a five-year practical on-the-job training. And within a year of that, again, I was like, well, I'm learning only medicine. I want to learn some technology. So I actually enrolled in a PhD in computer engineering mm -hmm. and did that um, on machine learning, what people now call artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. Yep. Um, meanwhile, my father, um, and this is how it all sort of came together, him and his friends joined CERN because one of his ex-students said, look, this is a big international collaboration with lots of great ideas, great technology, New Zealand should be part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, and as part of the logic to the government of why New Zealand should join soon, they said, look, there might be spin-off applications, they might be in health, they might be in all sorts of areas, but they actually named health as one of them. Right. And him and I were actually on holiday together in Europe. I was in, must have been 25, close to 30. Mm. Um, as I said, just finished all my training mm. and looking at what I could do with for my next step. And he said, you need to go to CERN and see some of the detector work they've done. Okay. So I went and visited and was convinced that they had some really special ideas about how to measure x-rays. And so him and I, I came back to New Zealand and, he, and so did he after a holiday. And we set about trying to form this project. Um, we went, it was at that stage, it was really just a, an interesting idea. We didn't know how to take it mm. anywhere. We knew we had this cool bit of physics um, that needed to get through to the hospital and we realised there was a whole lot of steps towards doing that. So we started getting a team together, we started getting funding, we started doing some initial experiments to prove it was possible Right. and we've kind of grown it over the last 12 years from there. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you the time frame. So that's yeah. sort of mid-2000s, was Mid it? Mid-2000s, yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. And in terms of um, maybe just before we talk about what you're doing now and things, but you know, you'd, you'd started down the path of being a medical doctor mm. and things. Um, yeah, how did that play out in terms of you You uh, you haven't taken that path? It sounds like there were oh, a I still have, actually. I, I'm, okay. I'm a work for the DHB 30% um, of my time. Okay. Um, as a radiologist, I look at images. Um, I do a lot of emergency radiology, a lot of women's radiology. Mm -hmm. um, I teach junior doctors. I teach medical students. So I guess I'm a part-time doctor. Okay. So well, within Mars, I guess the medical aspect is actually trying to determine how you take a new technology, where is it going to provide the most benefit to the patient. Mm -hmm. um, one of the challenges with all medical technologies is you often have a good idea or a good technology, but actually you need to understand how it's going to make a different patient workflow. Mm -hmm. or, the, or a term that's often used in medicine is the patient journey. So the time they get to their GP or to the hospital, right. how does the technology actually improve their care? And that's actually pretty hard unless you're, you've been in the 
process or the um, being part of the teams looking after patients to say this mm. is a pressure point this is where we don't know how to make a decision or if we knew this at this point we could make a decision to do x or y mm -hmm. so i think having that medical training has made a massive difference right. to guiding the technology um, you often see without having a medical technology person you often see a clinician saying i really want something like that does this and they're not well aligned to what's actually possible or alternatively, you have a technology person who says, I can do this. And um, again, it doesn't actually line up with what the hospitals need. Mm. So trying to get that balance right is a, a real challenge. Mm. And I guess the, what you're describing is whether you're creating a vitamin, um, or, you know, like that, that isn't necessarily solving a yeah. need of the yeah. real patient, right? Yeah, so you're actually understanding those needs because healthcare is complex. Yeah. Um, and it's not immediately obvious where the needs are. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's useful to have that background when you're doing this sort of work. Yeah, well, that's great. So can you just describe a little bit about what the project is okay, and, so and maybe how it's evolved? <laughs> okay, so um, we're doing color X-rays or X-ray spectral imaging. So X-rays are like visible light. They come in different wavelengths or frequencies or colors, mm -hmm. and we measure that. And we use that to give us more information about the object we're imaging, the tissue. Um, and I guess this is, comes back to the chicken and egg problem I was sort of alluding to. Right. When we first started, it was all well and good to know we could measure the colour of x-rays, but could that actually provide any use to the hospital? So we set about developing a technology plan where we built simple scanners that let us do simple experiments and show, aha, it might work here, and guide us through. So then we developed scanners that can be put in medical schools. So... Um, uh, either in research labs or pathology departments where you could put a surgical specimen in or a mouse mm. in it and we've distributed them around the world and that allows us to um, get feedback on how what diseases it's going to be useful for mm. um, and people are working on things like bone disease joints um, heart disease strokes cancer and over the years as we've understood more and more how color imaging influences though the diagnosis of those disease we can say okay the first machine that we we put out to a hospital will probably address this problem because that happens to be technically easy and we know we've got benefit there mm -hmm. so um, it's kind of lining those two things up mm -hmm. and so if you look at our, our team now we're um, 18 people in the company mm -hmm. um, a bunch of university researchers um, both technological and uh, medical school based and so there's kind of those three components a commercial component a technical component and a biomedical component mm -hmm. and uh, that's quite a lot to try and line up and make them all mm. play off the benefits of each other mm. yeah it makes sense and when you were first starting out was there a point when you looked at each other and thought yes this has real potential um like is it a moment that you remember or has it been sort of a gradual like yes it's working yeah no i think there this there was in fact i don't think it was us together because when I was in Europe with yep. my father. He was like, oh, you've got to go and look at this. It's great. Because I think he was probably convinced before I knew about it. Um, okay. <laughs> but didn't, as, as a physicist, because he was, he was a medical physicist, and he knew that these people in CERN were measuring stuff that other people couldn't. And I guess I went there and looked at it and said, wow, this is going to change medicine. This is 2004, 2005. Okay. And I could say, because of my background, I could say, imagine when this gets all the way through to being routine, it's going to affect this, this, and this. Um, and I remember the day I, I, I kind of first delved into it, and within the first six hours, like, this is going to be brilliant. Right. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. But I think Dad had had that sort of eureka moment earlier. Right. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he was like, you got to go check this yeah. out. Yeah. And then I remember getting back and, we were, and working with him saying, okay, now we need to get our first experiments done. We've got to get some money and we've got to get a student together. We've got to put together a sort of technology plan. Um, and mm-hmm. they were pretty simple early on. Like the, the first experiments we did um, were, I mean, they were very basic physics experiments with mm-hmm. some simple electronics, simple x-ray setups, just to prove that you could actually do this, um, get some pictures out. I mean, our first images that we did with a master's student were things like a, a dried bit of bone and a bee. Um, right. We did a actually a, a, a baby's hand was one of the 2006, I think, where we measured that in colour and you could see the different colours of the soft tissues the, the, and the, the bone. Mm. And that made sense in terms of the un- underlying physics, but to actually just measure it so easily was quite a surprise. And you know, mm. um, yeah, so there was all these little milestones along the way. It was quite exciting to finish the week and go, "Wow, we achieved a heap this week." Yeah, yeah. It feels to me like it's quite technical what you're doing, but then the outcome is quite visual. Yeah, that's exactly so, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is a fascinating combination when you think about it. Like we're sitting here in the lab and. You know, presumably there's people doing experiments yeah. and, and trying different things, um, but then the end the end result or the end product is something that me, without any technical background, can look at it and go, "Oh, that's a foot," and yeah. I can see the different gradations of color and and I understand that. I think know. you're right. That's always been one of the advantages of imaging. Um, even yeah. before this project, as I said, my my PhD was in machine learning and, and imaging, mm-hmm. and I. I remember talking to other students at the time saying how lucky we were that it was easy to do a presentation. It was just pictures. Right. <laughs> um, I don't know it how the mathematicians helps. do their presentations. It's much, much harder. But yeah. with imaging, you've got a picture yeah. and your video or something. So it's, it's quite easy. Yeah. No, I yeah. think that's right. <laughs> and it probably makes it easier because, um, you know, the, the people who aren't technical can look at it and go, yeah, absolutely. Get it. Get um, it. Yeah. So, you know, the, the publicity we got around our first human images, mm-hmm. um, I think you're right. If it didn't wasn't pretty, it wouldn't have got so far. Like people could look at the picture and go, "That's exciting. I can see how that relates to my life." Yeah, it's much much harder to do that if you've got some sort of mathematical theorem or some biochemistry where people struggle to yeah. relate it to themselves. Here's some numbers, and, yeah. and this is the end result. This is the equation. Yeah, or whatever. yeah, 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 yeah. So in terms of those first, um, you know, what was it? X-raying a bee and a bone and mm. those sorts of things. Um, when you look back at those images and things, and um, I guess, what is it that you've changed over the years and, and how has it changed into what it's become? Well, we started off being very, very slow. Um, mm-hmm. And we started off um, having to do the different colours one after the other. And we could only do small objects. So in that sense, a lot of it has been faster, better, higher accuracy, right. as opposed to a... Um, Rather than fundamentally yeah, different. Yeah, and then there's a, there are some fundamental changes. Like we, we can now do large objects, and that required some working with some um, solid-state physicists and, and engineers to move from silicon sensors to something called cadmium zinc telluride sensors. Okay. Um, we've changed the ASIC we use, the, the, the electronics, to measure up to eight energies simultaneously. We've had to develop a whole lot of new mathematics for how we take that raw signal and turn it into a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had to develop our own software for visualising and analysing the data. Mm-hmm. So there's been all those technology changes. And in parallel to that, we've worked through um, the kind of biomedical problems of what can we actually see. So we've 
you know, to, to focus on bone, the initial bone images, mm. we could just see the color of bone. And now we're starting to say, okay, we can measure the calcium map and we can measure the microstructure. So it goes from kind of an interesting picture to something where there's a pretty, in my mind, a pretty clear view that when this gets to become routine imaging, mm -hmm. it's useful to measure the calcium in someone's bones at 100 micron. Right. Um, I don't know how it's going to affect treatment planning. I don't know how it's going to affect the surgeons, but it's information they haven't had before. And I guess over the next 10 years, we'll work out how it fits in with their management plans and stuff. So mm. that's sort of like an, a, a wave moving forward, I guess. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and the key thing, the key result from it all is better information for yeah. people, right? Yeah, and, better and information. And less invasive. Yeah, better information and, and, yeah. and less invasive. So some of the work that um, we've been doing and we work with Notre Dame on is cancer imaging where they make labels for different cell lines. So okay. instead of just looking at a tumour and saying it's this big and has the treatment made it bigger or smaller, you can actually start to see that um, you might see the, the so-called HER2 receptor, which means that the tumour is respons responsive to Herceptin. So you're getting more information about the tumour, which will allow the the clinicians to work out, am I giving the right drug? Am I giving the, uh, the right dose? Am I giving it the right time? How's the patient responding to that? I see. And all of that fits the, the, the buzzword in medicine at the moment is what they call personalized medicine. Right. So you've got more information about that individual person that allows you to tailor the treatment to them. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I guess presumably like all technologies, as time goes on, it gets easier in terms of cost and, yeah. and, and how you're able to roll it out. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, Early on, we were sort of working with very small setups, and, and you know, the first mouse we scanned was 24 hours. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we can now do it in minutes. Um, we can do, you know, something the size of your wrist in about five or ten minutes. Right. Um, so, it's got faster, and I look at where we're going in the next 30 years, and there's no doubt in my mind that all X-ray imaging will be in colour. Mm. Um, we're doing it. Other people around the world are doing it. Um, I don't know why you'd ever have black and white images. Mm. At the moment we have black and white because it's expensive or, or colour is tricky or whatever. But those technical things will keep changing. It's a little bit like moving from you know, film camera to, to a digital camera. Mm. Um, early on there's teething problems about resolution and cost. But eventually the, the better technology will win. Yeah. Well, even going back further, I'm thinking about television. You know, yeah. originally it was black and white, mm. and then it moved to color, and now the flat screens and everything. Yeah, like it's it, a, all of, all technology does this. Yeah, yeah. and you're right. TV's yeah. been through the same progression. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And just thinking about you use the phrase, you know, 30 years from now, mm. what else is going to be? What, what's it going to look like? You know, putting on a futurist hat. <laughs> We're in. What what does that make? Oh, it, th you there's know? lots of technology changes coming in medical imaging. Yeah. Um, you know that. We're measuring the X-ray colour. It turns out X-rays also have phase. Um, you can measure the, ref the refraction of them to, mm. um, and they call that phase contrast imaging. Mm -hmm. you can, they scatter. The, most X-ray systems ignore at the moment, but that's real information that you could measure and, and somehow work out how that relates to the image. Mm. I mean, there are backscatter X-ray systems that look at the surface, but um, in most transmission X-rays, scatter is what people would call noise but it's actually it's not noise in the sense it's random mm -hmm. it's a real physical process we can measure it therefore we should be able to use it to mm. enhance our images mm. it makes sense mm. and i guess as it gets easier and easier and faster and faster to do this type of thing because one of the things with you know cancer in particular mm. is that sometimes people don't know they've 
got the early stages, but presumably if it was easier to scan, then you could pick things up that, yeah. you, that very often people don't even know until it's too late. Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things around what you might call access to, to scanners. Yeah. Um, I believe that medical imaging is heading more and more to so-called point-of-care imaging. So if you go to the dentist, they will take an X-ray before they operate on your teeth, and they'll right. do that in the practice. Mm. If you go to an obstetrician um, as a pregnant woman, they might do the scan as they talk to you, and that's becoming more and more common. So there's now scanners um, around for body parts, so, so a foot scanner and a wrist scanner. So I think point-of-care scanning is going to increase. I don't know quite how far that will go, but if you go to an, an after-hours practice, they'll probably have... Um, plain x-ray systems I would imagine in 10 or 15 years it would be normal to have a, a full 3D scanner somewhere like that mm. the cost will drop, the safety will increase um, mm. and so it'll, the access will, will improve Yeah, because you can foresee a day, maybe not well I don't know how long in the mm. future but once it does get to be standard where you go to your GP and they say first can you just go over here and, and stand there for a couple minutes and, you know, yeah. like it, let's, let's image your whole body and then let's have a health check of yeah. how you're doing you know because it presumably can pick up discrepancies and yeah absolutely I, I mean the whole body at the GP might be a way off but yeah. actually maybe it's going to come in parts right yeah right so um, you could imagine a an after hours GP where you have 10 doctors there and they look at broken bones and things having a risk an, an arm scanner yeah. or maybe a head scanner and that information is collected there and goes off in the cloud to be looked at by experts at the hospital who says oh you need to send this person in or no you right. don't yeah um, in fact if you look at the medical imaging market that's the fastest growing part of the market the mm. so-called point-of-care scanners mm, right interesting yeah the thing I love about our conversation as well though is like I feel like you know if you went back a hundred years and you talked about what the future would hold people wouldn't wouldn't understand mm. <laughs> you know I mean going back to horse-drawn carriage mm. time mm. if you said no no we're not going to rely on horses as the main means of transport in our cities. We're going to have these things called vehicles, yeah. and we're going to drive them. I feel in a way like somebody one day will listen to our conversation right now <laughs> and be going, oh, they, you know, like so much change yeah. in the next 40 or 50 or 60 years. I think it's really hard to envision the future, right? Because yeah. I, I laid out some basic physics that we know we should be able to measure in X-ray beams that we don't at the moment. Right. Um, around scatter, around phase, mm. um, and there's new mathematics being developed since I studied it at universities um, that allow us to, to do much, much lower dose imaging, and, mm. and that, that's some of that's in your cell phone, getting you better quality images off your cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you start combining these technologies where one leverages off the other. It's really hard to predict where it's going to go in 50 or 100 years. Yeah. But I think the key thing in my mind is if you know there's that many things to go and you say okay each one's 10 years or at least 50 or 100 years away from realizing what's possible now mm. um, or, or actualizing what we can dream of yeah and by the time we get there there'll be a whole lot more things to dream about yeah for sure mm. <laughs> and i guess the the thing i love about this podcast is we often go this way like thinking mm. about the future but just you know if you can start imagining what it's going to be like then what are the steps that are needed now yeah. to improve what we've got right yeah, to then absolutely. be able to stand on the shoulders to reach the next level yeah, yeah. so and coming back to x-ray imaging because that's a, a very tangible thing mm -hmm. um 
I, th I think colour is imaging or spectral imaging is here now and it's going to wind its way through the clinic and then I think we'll have phase contrast coming in so shortly after and then we'll get some of the new mathematics coming in parallel that will drop the dose so called compressed sensing yeah. and even then that's just the next 30 years right. um, <laughs> and that will be, all that will be leveraged against things like cloud based reporting systems, artificial intelligence mm -hmm. so um, the, the future is going to be massively different and I've, I've been told that humans are very poor. We overestimate how much we can achieve in one year right. and underestimate how much we can achieve in 10. Right. And I think then you start projecting for 30 years. I mean, you just look back to the 90s, how far our, our world's come. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I noticed over in the corner here, you have a time machine. So we're gonna go in the time machine 100 years from now. <laughs> um, what, what are some of the things, because you must be thinking about these, we've kind of touched on mm. a bit, but you know, in, it's 2,118. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you think in terms of imaging and health that, that, will, that are, I guess it will be our great-grandchildren? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it will be much more pervasive. And I think, um, so I talked about point of care and, I, and you talked about whole body scanners at your, yeah. at your GP. I think that will become pretty standard within 100 years. Um, but I think on top of that, there's the, the pattern recognition systems, the machine learning will make a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, I guess there's all sorts of techniques that we haven't thought of yet. I mean, if you look back at the history of medical imaging, roughly every 10 or 20 years, there's a new modality, you know, ultrasound, MRI. Right. And there's a whole lot more sitting in the wings that you hear about. Mm. Um, I guess, you know, the general public doesn't, but if you scan the journals, you'll find all sorts of things coming out. Mm. Yeah, I, I have got a, a thought that I think is, is useful here. They, they, we call ourselves molecular imaging, right? So when I trained as a radiologist, it was anatomy. It was a size and shape that, that you make a diagnosis. And you'd say, well, that, that lump if you, is in someone's breast. It's likely to be cancer. It's got speculations on it. It's even more likely to be cancer. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that spectral imaging starts us down the path of and PET imaging starts us down the path of is molecular imaging. So I think within 100 years, I wouldn't call it an, a medical image a, a shape-based thing I call it a molecular thing or a, bi a biochemistry imaging biochemistry um, what processes are going on in the cell so some of the groups we're working with um, mm. around the world make agents that go as I say target individual cell lines so you can actually see if there's um, been a little blood clot occur within a within an atheroma or whether one cell line's proliferating so it's not a shape-based imaging it's mm. It's functional imaging. Hmm. So it's a lot more information. A lot more information, <laughs> yeah. Than, than even what we're talking about. Yeah, isn't absolutely. It? It's, it's and I think this is why you. Next level of detail. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a, um, a picture in my presentations of a typical X ray system, and I, there's a radiologist staring at a screen, and I just label that as a pattern recognition system. Right. And I do that because I think the amount of information coming in to the clinician, to the diagnostician, is just gonna go up exponentially and continue to, and so computers are gonna be the way we have to sort through that. Right, which intersects back with AI and, mm. and machine learning mm. and things, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, so just thinking, one of the things I like to ask people is just, I guess, around the word purpose, mm -hmm. you know, and thinking about what you're doing. Um, how does what you're doing now align with purpose and, and in terms of what you're achieving my purpose? Or yeah. 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 Um, it's a pretty wide open question, so yeah. take it where you want. <laughs> so there, there's my personal goals, mm. um, and then there's 
you know, we've got a lot of government money, a lot of commercial money, and they have what their outcomes are. Sure. So I remember writing on my CV in my mid-twenties that my personal goal for life was to have a significant impact on medical imaging. Mm -hmm. And I feel I'm starting to achieve that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my purpose. I want to take this technology and get it out to the world and hope to improve um, lots of people's lives. Now, there are 300 million CT scans, X-ray CT scans, performed every year around the world. And so if any way myself and my colleagues and my team and mm. can affect the quality of those 300 million scans that's a lot of impact mm. um, so that's my personal goal mm-hmm. um, we've had a lot of money out of the tertiary education commission ministry of business foundation for science and technology arthritis foundation heart foundation um, and their goal is to well they've got two goals really one is to improve the healthcare of new zealanders mm-hmm. and i guess I think bigger than the healthcare of New Zealanders, I actually think about the healthcare of the world, mm-hmm. um, and that will include New Zealanders. Um, and the other goal they have is to improve New Zealand economy. Um, and I think that's a, a very important goal, right? The, um, you know, they, they talk about lead time between research and economic benefit being about 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the technology we, we're working with has, was developed some of it at CERN in the 70s and 80s for detecting high energy particles um, if it makes it through to widespread adoption by 2020 or 2030 it's about on, on track um, and if along the way we can employ a lot of people um, make a New Zealand industry developing these technologies that's really satisfying mm. you know our team as I said has grown from me and my father to 50 people mm-hmm. and um, there's a certain amount of pride and responsibility in that. And in terms of the plans for the future, I guess, is it to stay in Christchurch? Or I imagine there must be temptation to go to other big centres of the yeah, world. Yeah, <laughs> well, actually, one of the things we realised very early on is this sort of work's actually easy to do in Christchurch and, and, and New Zealand in general. Right. Um, we're very good at multidisciplinary research or multidisciplinary anything because everyone knows each other. So it was very easy early in the, in the programme to take a physics experiment, move it across the medical school, go and ask pathologists for some specimens and get going. Right. Um, because everyone knew each other. Um, most people wear multiple hats. Um, so that makes that kind of doable. Mm. I look at other centres overseas and they, they have a huge amount of expertise, but they're often quite siloed because of it. And I think that's a function of size. Mm. Um, and also isolation. We, we have to do it in, in town. We have to mm. find people in New Zealand can help, can help us because otherwise it's a 12-hour plane flight. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's actually one of the themes of the podcast when I talk with people mm. is the, the value of collaboration and mm. cross-disciplinary yeah. engagement. Yeah. That, that if you stay in your silo, you're probably not going to innovate the same way you would if you talked with someone who does something completely different to you but is aligned in terms of where they're headed yeah I think that's totally right mm-hmm. and in fact uh, of those 50 people we've got mathematicians biochemists physicists computer engineers surgeons radiologists mm-hmm. uh, rheumatologists you know we're very very multidisciplinary and that's truly our strength yeah. and setting up a team that broad overseas I think is very hard uh, there are other people working in the spectral imaging space um, at institutes overseas and I haven't come across a team as multidisciplinary as ours. Mm. Um, there's some really, really good teams, but what we specialise in, if you like, is the multidisciplinary aspect of it. Mm. 
Well, Anthony, it's been great to chat with you. I've just really enjoyed hearing your background mm. and just going back to your childhood. Mm. And, you know, you used the word curious, which is a word I love, you know, that, you've, that you um, ended up studying medicine, but also physics. Mm. And then you ended up doing this, you know, learning about um, AI mm. and, and other things. And it feels like this role that you're in now is kind of combining all of those backgrounds mm. in a way that, um, yeah, that, that's potentially quite beneficial to many, many people mm. through the new technology. Yeah, I mean, one of the most satisfying things about this is actually it's health research or mm -hmm. health technology. And so there is a lot of money to be made because it's a high tech and you, and you sell it and that's how you get your product out there. Yeah. But actually coming back to that 300 million people a year who get a CT, that if we can improve their their time in the health system, then that's actually incredibly satisfying. Mm. Yeah, and I think like all of us, everyone listening will know someone who's been impacted by cancer of some kind or whatever. Absolutely. And I'm sure all of us would agree if there's anything that can be done to improve the, you know, yeah. the, the care that they're given at the, particularly in the early stages, I'm thinking, you know, like if there's something that could be done, then I'm sure we're all rooting for that. Yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, our research teams are divided up into cancer, heart disease, stroke, bone, and degenerative problems. Right. And that's about 70 to 80% of what people get going to hospital with. And I'm wondering which one's going to get me. Yeah, right. Because I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully the technology will improve and we'll yeah. all be able to benefit, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for um, spending time just talking about what you're doing and um, all the very best for it. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I found it fascinating to hear about all that they're doing and just reflecting as well on, you know, not five years from now, 10 years from now, but thinking 100 years from now, what some of these technologies might actually mean for the health sector and most importantly, for you and I as individuals who maybe one day will be able to really benefit from the early identification of cancer and other things which could affect our health. If you did enjoy the episode, then there's three simple things you can do to help me out. The first is to tell somebody else about the show. The second is to leave a rating and review in the podcast app that you're using to listen to it. And the third is to listen to some of the dozens and dozens of other interviews, because if you enjoyed this one, I'm sure you'd enjoy the others as well. Until next time. Mm -hmm.